Well, I've been doing a, a series called Multiplication versus Division, and we're talking about how the early church in the first century that we read about in the book of Acts, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John talk about the life of Jesus, and then Acts talks about the acts of the apostles, those followers of Jesus, after Jesus' death, after Jesus' resurrection, after Jesus' ascension, and he says, I've given you the great commission to go and make disciples of all the world, and we see this slowly starting to unfold, and the church is growing by leaps and bounds. We see outside forces trying to stop that, and we see internal forces trying to stop that. But what we see is, is that the church keeps multiplying anyway. And what we're hoping to see in this is that what happened in that early first century are practical things that we can learn about allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives and to work in the church to continue to multiply the church. But I want to share something kind of funny with you. Um, there's a lot of laws out there that we probably don't know about that are still on the books that probably should have been changed years ago, but for whatever reason, they just haven't been changed. And there's a couple that deal specifically with churches in different states in the United States. So I'm just going to read you a few of those that are still on the books. I'm not really sure why they're still there or why they got on there in the first place, but they're interesting. Um, in Wheeler, Mississippi, young girls are never allowed to walk a tightrope unless it's in church. In Blackwater, not backwater, but Blackwater, Kentucky, tickling a woman under her chin with a feather duster while she's in a church service carries a penalty of $10 and one day in jail. In a place in Oregon, no one can eat unshelled roasted peanuts while attending church. In Honey Creek, Iowa, no one is permitted to carry a slingshot to church except for a police officer. In Lee Creek, Arkansas, no one is allowed to attend church in any red-colored garment. have no idea where that came from. Swinging a yo-yo in church or anywhere in public on the Sabbath is not permitted in Studley, Virginia. And in, and in Slaughter, Louisiana, turtle races are not permitted within 100 yards of a local church at any time. Now, I know that's crazy, but those are really laws that are in the books in some places. I don't know how they got started or why they're still there. But you think about those, and you think, I'm sure at some point there was a reason for that law or for that rule or whatever, but it's very interesting. But I want you to think about something. How many of you have ever gone in to take a test where you knew you were not going to pass that test? Okay, there's a lot of y'all. There's nothing worse. I remember being in high school, and I just remember studying and studying and going in, especially math. I was never good at math. That's why I'm this whole multiplication division thing, okay? But you go in, and you just kind of go, you know, I really don't have a chance here. I've studied. I've done the best I can. But the good thing about this is when this 30 minutes or hour is over, I'm done. You know, I, I was to the point where I don't even care if I fail. I'm just going to be done. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to do this anymore. All right, so y'all know that. There's, a, there's a, a bad feeling when you're going into a test where you know you can't pass it. It's a helpless, it's a hopeless feeling. But there can also be another feeling uh, where there's a deception that giving a test that you know someone else can't pass kind of gives you some power. Have you ever had to make somebody take a test and you know there's no way they can pass it and deep inside you're really glad that they're not going to pass it because maybe you're mad at them or something. You know, they're going to fail it and I'm glad. And so you have this feeling that I'm going to give them a test. There's no way they're going to pass. They're not going to be in the cool club or whatever it is. And they're just not going to pass. And, I, and I'm kind of glad of that. So you feel a little bit of this power. 
But that feeling of power or superiority or whatever it is, is short-lived. Especially if we're going to give a test that we know we can't pass either. Have you ever done that? Have you ever expected someone to pass a test that you know you couldn't possibly pass ever? And I'm not really talking about a specific written test, am I? I'm talking about there's things in life where we expect, have expectations of others to live up to those expectations, but we know even ourselves can't live up to those expectations. So the Apostle Peter comes to this realization in his life after several defining moments that he has. And we've read about some of those in the last few weeks. Um, last week we talked about his experience with a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile. And not only did he go to his house which is something a Jew did not do, go to a Gentile's house. But he actually went in his house and he shared the gospel of Christ because it was revealed to him from God in a vision. And the Holy Spirit says, I want you to go to these men who come to your house and go to this man named Cornelius. He is a Gentile. And I know you've been told your whole life that you're not supposed to associate with Gentiles, but I'm telling you all of that has changed since Jesus has come. He not only died on the cross for our sins, but he also rose again to give us eternal life. And guess what? That's not just for the Jews. That's for everybody. And you think, well, everybody knows that, but I'm telling you, if you grew up in the first century as a Jewish man, that would be something that was hard to get through your head and to your heart. It would be really hard to grasp that. And Peter's starting to grasp it. He sees what's happening. He's heard about it. He's heard about that a guy named Philip, who's a follower of Christ too, has gone to a region and started preaching to the Gentiles, and they're coming to know the Lord. They're being baptized. He's heard about it. He went and saw for himself, this is for real. They are welcoming us here. They're accepting the word of Christ. This is phenomenal. He saw it. He heard about it. He went and saw it. And now God's got him involved in doing it in the, in the life of Cornelius and these other people who are Gentiles. And he's going, this is for real. This is what Jesus was talking about, going to all the world, starting in Jerusalem, right where is my, you know, my stomping grounds, but going out to Judea, into Samaria, and going into all the ends of the earth. And a few weeks ago, we talked about Philip talking to the Ethiopian treasurer who ends up going back to Ethiopia and sharing the word of Christ. So we see that the, the gospel is multiplying just like Jesus always intended. But back to that thing about you know, a test or an expectation. You expect someone else to pass that you know yourself can't pass. And you're going to see why I'm saying that in just a minute. But Peter discovered through direct revelation from God and the Holy Spirit that non-Jewish people, if you don't know what Gentiles is, it's a fancy word for non-Jewish people, that they also have the opportunity to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That same Jesus that died on the cross for him also died for the whole world. And now he's starting to grasp this. But for years, Peter had been taught a certain way. He had believed a certain way. He had practiced a certain way. But now he's saying, through Jesus, I realize there's something bigger than that. This is what Jesus was talking about. He challenged Peter on that and showed him a different thought process, a different heart process, and a different way of acting process. It transformed Peter. And this transformation is a journey. And I say this a lot in my sermons, and I'll say it again. We need to understand that. When we become a follower of Christ, it is a journey. It's a transformation period through the rest of our life. From the time we say, Jesus, I want you into my life, till the day we die, God is constantly transforming us, isn't he? You don't get it immediately right after you're baptized. You don't get it after a year of Sunday school or church. You consistently are learning more about what God wants to teach you through his Holy Spirit. And it's a process, and this is happening in Peter's life. For crying out loud, he's been with Jesus himself. He saw him die, he saw him rise, he saw him resurrected, he's heard him teach, and he's still learning through this process. And even after Jesus is gone, the Holy Spirit is 
changing his heart and transforming him to say, wait a minute, this gospel is for everybody. So he still had a lot to learn, but God is showing him that this great commission was not just something he said before he left, it's for real, and he's seeing it happening. And so are the rest of the followers of Jesus. And so as Peter and the other disciples saw the Holy Spirit's power working, not only in their own lives, but they're starting to see it work in other people's lives, they're saying, this is amazing. This is what Jesus was talking about. He wasn't kidding. When he left, he wasn't completely living. He allows his spirit to do something inside of us. And when they saw some of the old legalistic ways starting to get back in again, and this is how he grew up, very legalistic. It was all about the law, all about the law. Following rules, following rules, following rules. If you could obey all the rules you were in, if you couldn't, you were out. And that alienated so many people. And now... Peter's going, golly, I thought like that for so long. I acted like that for so long. I treated people like that for so long. I don't want to go back to that. And I see that starting to seep back in a little bit. And I don't want any part of that. And I'm going to fight that. Because I've seen what God's done in my life. I see what he's doing in other people's lives. And I want to see the church continue to multiply. So we're going to read from Acts chapter 15 today. And you guys are awesome because I know we had a little technical glitch, and you got it right back up really fast, so thank you. We love you guys, and that stuff happens. I don't care if we're in the new building. It'll happen. That's just the way it happens, all right? So we're going to look at Acts 15 this morning, verses 1 through 20. Now, I've skipped from chapter 10 last week all the way to 15, and you're going, what's the deal? You know, well, that's just what preachers can do. We can do, you know, we can talk whatever we want to talk about. But there's a lot of good stuff between chapter 10 and 15, like the conversion of Saul to Paul. And that's an amazing story, but I'm going to continue to talk about the church is continuing to grow. You had this legalistic guy named Saul who was about as good as keeping rules as anybody ever has been. And God said, you're not going to keep rules anymore. You're going to understand grace. And he struck him blind and he transformed him. And now all of a sudden he's gone from killing Christians and arresting Christians because of this Jesus to saying, you're going to be the one that's going to take it to people who are not Jews. It's an amazing story. But I want to go into 15, and some of these things that are happening, this is, this is about something called a council that happened in Jerusalem. So I'm going to start in verse 1. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So somebody's going out and saying this, okay? This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria... They told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news, made, this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So you see what's happening? All these people that have been pushed away for so long by the Jewish laws and saying, you're not good enough, you're not good enough to be a part of us, all of a sudden, they're having the Jews open their hearts and say, we've been wrong about that, we want you to know the good news. It's not about law, it's not about rules, it's about relationship with God. That's what we want you to know. And people are coming to Christ for the first time. Gentiles are saying, why are these Jewish people finally sharing this with us? For so long they tried to keep us out. This is an amazing thing. Good things are happening. But there's these guys who are saying, no, they can become a Christian, but they're not really saved until they have something done to their body, which is not real pleasant, okay? And they can't 
and unless they follow all the rules of Moses. And they're going, what are you talking about? Jesus never said that. That's not the gospel we're presenting. We're talking about the gospel. It's called you're saved by grace through faith. Everybody can do that. It's not about a physical ritual you go through. It's not about obeying all the laws. And I'm telling you, at this point, Peter is fired up about it. And he's gone all the way back to Jerusalem and go, this has got to stop. We are not going to let this divide the church. The church is growing. But if you start seeping that law and legalism stuff back in there, you're going to kill this. You're going to kill the growth. We can't have this. So they said that. So um, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, and I don't know how long this went, but there was a lot of discussion about this. Some people said, yeah, they've got to do this. Other people said no. But this is what, after much discussion, verse 7, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. He's not being arrogant here, y'all. He's just saying... They needed to hear it from me. I was closest to Jesus. God knew my heart wasn't right about that. I thought it was still exclusive. And he's changed my heart. And God wanted to hear it from me. They needed to hear. This guy that was closest to Jesus, if he's saying it, then we know it's true. And he says, so they heard that. Who knows my heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, give the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Did you hear what he said? This yoke, y'all know what a yoke is? You ever seen that on a cow or an oxen? It's a thing that yokes you together. He says, why are we trying to put that on these new Christians? We've already alienated them for years by that. Why are we trying to go back to that? You're pushing them away. Don't do that. And guess what, guys? We couldn't keep up with it either, could we? And those guys that are saying this stuff are sitting there going, well, I can keep the rules. Very prideful. I can keep the rules. No, you can't. We can't keep all the rules, can we? We need a Savior. Rules do not save us. If we could be saved by keeping the rules, Jesus never would have needed to come. Jesus never would have needed to die. He never would have needed to rise again. But all of that was necessary to save me. And no amount of rules that I try to keep can ever do that. And that, Peter is understanding this and he's fighting for this. We're not going to let that get back in there. We're not going to let that legalism get back in there. So the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So Peter gives this impassioned speech. We're not going back there. Why are you trying to put this yoke back on them? Why are you testing God? And then he says, then Barnabas and Paul are saying, let me just tell you, we were very Jewish too, and we're going out among the Gentiles, and God is doing amazing things. I'm just telling you what's happening. We cannot argue. Just look at what's happening. Lives are being changed. There used to be this thing between the Jews and the Gentiles, and now they're accepting Christ, and their lives are being transformed. So when they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. And he reads from an Old Testament passage from Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Do you hear that? This is written hundreds of years ago. And James, do you know who this James is, y'all? 
This is the brother of Jesus himself, who was very skeptical about his own brother being the Messiah till he finally understood it and grasped that after his resurrection. And he's saying, don't you understand? You've heard what Peter said. He was closest to Jesus. Don't you understand? You've just heard what Paul and Barnabas are saying is going on. And don't you understand from the Old Testament? This is what Amos was talking about. David's fallen tent. The Gentiles, they will restore them. They will be like the rest of mankind. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, God's saying they're my children too. I chose you Jewish people, but I chose you to be alike to the rest of the world. That doesn't mean I loved them any less than you. That just means I chose, chose you to, to carry my name, to be the light for the rest of the world. But I never forgot about the Gentiles through all of this. So, so then James says, verse 19, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And if you throw all those old rules on them again and make them do the circumcision and all that, it's just going to turn them away from God. Why, why would we want to do that? Instead, we should write to them telling them to, and he says, abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. What? I know some of you are going, what? What does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what he's saying. He goes, we're not going to go back to circumcision. We're not going to go back and say they have to um, keep all the law of Moses they're saved by grace just like us. But here's some things we ought to tell them that they ought to practice. Now, I don't understand all of this, but he says food polluted by idols. What he's saying is in this culture, a lot of the Gentiles are coming out of a culture, y'all, where when they went to worship, there was all kind of crazy stuff going on. Sexual things were going on as part of worship. You can see why that was appealing. Oh, you go to church and there's all kind of crazy stuff going on. Okay, So he's saying you need to tell them, stop that. That is absolutely... Uh, uh, you know, detrimental to everybody, relationships and, and people. We need to stop that. And then there's been food that's been sacrificed to idols. Why would you eat that if it's been sacrificed to a false god? Don't do that. That's hurting your witness. And then this whole thing about strangled and blood, we can say, ah, that's a lot of Jewish dietary practices. But you've got to understand, there were Jewish people who were turning to Christ too, and they practiced certain things. And so when they're fellowshipping in one another's homes, as the church did, they were saying, we've got to be real careful not to offend somebody else's culture. You know? For instance, if I know you're a vegetarian, and I invite you to my house to eat, and I throw a, a couple of steaks on the grill that's probably not going to go over real well with you. Now, I may think that's not something I would do. I may think it's crazy or whatever. But if I invite you to my house, if I'm sensitive and really want to have a relationship with you, I'm probably going to have salad and baked potatoes or something that night. I'm not going to throw a steak on the grill. Does that make sense? I think that's what he's basically saying. And this whole blood thing, this was part of drinking blood and some of these uh, other religions they're coming from. And he's saying, don't y'all know what we do? And we're getting ready to do it in a minute. We celebrate the body of Christ by taking wine and bread. That's symbolic. And we're not going to let that blood thing be turned into something that's disrespectful to God. So he's saying, as long as we're going to come together, we've got to be respectful of each other. We're not going to make them practice our things, but he's telling the Gentiles, be respectful of the Jews and where they're coming from. Do you see how big this is? Where this whole group is sitting down and saying, this is important for us all to understand what everybody's background is and what God's called us to, to be the body of Christ. And we're in this journey, and we're trying to get closer to Christ, but we come from different backgrounds, and we need to stay away from these things. So they send this letter with 
Um, some of these guys are at the meeting say, go tell the people that they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the, the whole law of Moses, but tell them the sexual immorality thing. And, and, and this is a sermon for another day. But sexual immorality, y'all, covers all kinds of immorality. In the Greek word, it means all kinds. Heterosexual, homosexual, out of wedlock, all those kind of things. I know we don't like to hear those things nowadays, but that was very specific. It's devastating when we take something that God has made and turn it into something that he never intended it to be. So he's saying don't do that, and let's be careful with our dietary things, with our other brothers and sisters. Let's be good. So the church was able to continue to multiply in spite of that. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing. So what does that say to us today? Well, first of all, he's saying there's, there's three don'ts here. He says, don't test God by clinging to the law rather than God's grace. That's the first thing he's telling them. The law, uh, you remember, you've heard of the uh, great old preacher D.L. Moody. He said this one time. He said, law tells me how crooked I am. Grace comes along and straightens me out. How great a saying is that? I'll read that one again. Law tells me how crooked I am, but grace comes along and straightens me out. And that's exactly what Peter's saying. The law never straightened me out. It just showed me that I was crooked. But Jesus came, and through his grace, he's able to straighten me out. And we're seeing that in the lives of the Gentiles. So let's not let that happen. And he says, don't put a yoke on the necks of the Gentiles that we or our fathers have not been able to bear. And I have to believe that Peter, when he used that term, yoke, he thought about something Jesus said. Do you remember something that Jesus said about yoke? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. And I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and humble of heart. And I will give you rest for your souls. Okay? That's what he says in Matthew. And he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I have to believe that when Peter is making this impassioned speech and he uses that word yoke, he's got a flashback to when Jesus is saying this. He goes, what do you mean? A yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. I do want rest for my souls. I am weary. I am burdened. And that's the kind of God that we have. He says, I know where you are and I want to relieve that. And so Peter's saying that. He's saying, we couldn't do it, but now we can. God's saying, I'm with you in that yoke. A yoke isn't just one, is it? There's two of them teamed together. And Jesus is saying, I'm with you. I want to be there in your burdens. I'm not saying I'm going to take them completely away, but I'm going to be there when you're burdened. Some of y'all are in that right now. And you need to believe that Jesus is there with you in those burdens. He really is. And we want to believe that he's not. Satan will say, no, he's not. He doesn't care. He's forgotten about you. But it's not true. He's there. And then he says, don't make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to God. So there's some don'ts, he tells them. But I want to read you something that um, another pastor, some of y'all have uh, probably heard of John Ortberg, but he talks about as we grow up, and, and I'm trying to kind of bring this into our culture, there's a lot of things we grew up in the church hearing that we were supposed to do or not supposed to do. And as we get older, we kind of go, is that a biblical truth or is that a religious tradition or conviction? Do y'all understand there's a difference between the two? There's a difference between something that's religiously convicting to me or traditionally convicting to me and what's actually biblical truth. There's a difference, and there's a big difference. Listen to what John Ortberg says. He says, Conforming to boundary markers too often substitutes for authentic transformation. The church I grew up in had its boundary markers. A prideful or resentful pastor could have kept his job, but if the pastor ever was caught smoking a cigarette, he would have been fired. 
Not because anyone in the church actually thought smoking was a worse sin than pride or resentment, but because smoking defined who was in our subculture and who wasn't. It was a boundary marker. As I was growing up, having a quiet time became a boundary marker, a measure of our spiritual growth. If someone came up to me and says, how's your quiet time going? I would think about, have I been having a regular and lengthy quiet time in my life? My initial thought was not, am I growing more loving toward God and more loving towards other people? But how long and consistent have I been in my quiet time? Boundary markers change from culture to culture, but the dynamic remains the same. If people do not experience authentic transformation, then their faith will deteriorate into a search for the boundary markers that masquerade as evidence of a changed life. How true is that? We can keep boundary markers sometimes, can't we? Well, I can do that, but am I really becoming closer to God and loving Him more, and am I loving other people more? That's real, authentic transformation. And there's a great message here for us today in the church and how we can handle conflict. There were some people saying, you've got to do this, and some other people going, wait a minute. We've seen things. We've seen that the Gentiles are turning to God. That's an amazing thing. We rejoice in that. And we're not going to let a group of, a small group was teaching people that, no, they have to be circumcised and they have to obey the law of Moses. But everybody came together and go, wait a minute, what's truth? What is truth? What did Jesus teach? He taught, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all could come to Christ. That's where, what came out of Jesus' mouth. That's what we're going to go with. What have we seen the Holy Spirit doing in our lives as leaders? What have we seen the Holy Spirit doing in the lives of people that we've pushed away for so long? We've seen amazing things. So how do you argue with that? Peter was coming from my own life, my own transformation. I'm telling you what I've seen, what I've been a part of. God's doing something. Paul and Barnabas said the Holy Spirit is doing things. I mean, if Paul wasn't a poster child for transformation, he goes, y'all remember, y'all don't even want me to come in your church because I've been taking people to jail. And now you've seen my life? That is why I'm arguing against that old way. And then James goes, look at God's word, y'all. Some of y'all that are saying we need to go back to the old way, hundreds of years ago, even the, the prophets were saying, eventually, God is going to show you that the Gentiles are on the same level as we are. We just have missed it. We just missed it. And let's wake up to that. So there's a great message for us today in the church on how we, con how we handle conflict. That means we need to come together with our leaders and say, what does God's word say? What do we see the Holy Spirit doing? Not necessarily what is the majority saying. Y'all have heard of Margaret Thatcher, the former Prime Minister of, uh, of Britain. And she said this, When Christians meet, their purpose is not, or it should not be, to ascertain what is the mind of the majority, but what is the mind of the Holy Spirit. Something which may be quite different. How true is that? So we need to be seeking what is the Holy Spirit doing in this. Not what the majority says. Because the majority can say something can be devastating and can cause division rather than multiply the church. Max Licato says this about how important it is for the diversity of the church to come together. He says, questions can make hermits out of us, driving us into hiding. When we have questions about things and we don't have an environment in the church where we can say, ask your questions, we openly ask you to ask your questions, yet the cave has no answers. Christ distributes courage through community. He dissipates doubts through fellowship. He never deposits all knowledge in the one person, but distributes pieces of the jigsaw puzzle to many. 
When you interlock your understanding with mine and we share our discoveries, when we mix, mingle, confess, and pray, Christ speaks to us. And that's so true as well. God's saying there's a lot of different backgrounds. And when we come together, when we pray together, when we read God's Word, we may see things differently. And that's okay, but we eventually got to say, what is God's Word clearly saying? What is the Holy Spirit clearly saying? And let's move forward with that. So this morning, we've heard a lot, but I am so encouraged to say, hey, I want to take, I want to take notes from that early church, how the leadership handled things. Because guess what? There's going to be things that are going to come up in our culture and in our church that we're going to have um, disagreements about, aren't we? Why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? And we've got to be able to come together and say, wait a minute, what does Scripture say? What is the Holy Spirit doing? What do we see from the first century church? What do we see from history? What can we learn? What is God trying to teach us? And let's sit down and talk about this. And let's make sure we're not keeping anybody, making it harder for them to come to the Lord. That's so important. And when we move down here to this new building, y'all, there's going to be new people coming in. And we don't have to say, oh, well, you didn't take communion right. They didn't put their cup back right. They didn't do this right. They weren't singing the songs right. They aren't going to Sunday school. They're not in a small group. All those things are important, but we've got to remember when new people are coming, we don't need to put hindrances in their way. They're going to keep them saying just because I do. There's a lot of things that I might think I should do, but I don't necessarily need to put that on you. It might be my personal conviction, but it has to be biblical truth that we need to follow. So that's why we need to know God's Word. And we need to know there's going to be people that want to be a part, and we need to remove hindrances. We need to let them understand that this yoke they're going to put on them is not going to be yoke they're going to put on by themselves, but it's going to be Jesus in there with them, and also us there to support them, to grow and strengthen and become the, the, the Christian and the follower that He's always wanted us to be. So this morning, we want to offer an invitation. Maybe there's something you've heard today, maybe in one of the songs, maybe... What Kevin said earlier, God speaks in a lot of ways. and the, That's why I love church, y'all, on Sunday morning. Sometimes you sit there, and I've been there, believe me. It's, I just sound like Charlie Brown's teacher talking. You didn't hear a single thing I said because you're thinking about something else. But like Kevin was talking about, you have a, a conversation with somebody before church, during church, after church, and something that God does through that person really touches you, maybe even more than the message did. But maybe something you heard today. We offer that hope of a relationship with Christ. Not a relationship with the law. That's empty. A relationship with Christ. The one who says, I know you can't keep that yoke, but I'm going to put that yoke on with you and I'm going to walk through you with life. Walk through life with you. So we offer that invitation. Maybe you're here today and you need to make that commitment for the first time. Name Jesus, your Lord and Savior. And we're going to offer that. Or maybe you're looking for a church home. We are not a perfect church by any means, but we are a church that's committed to following what God's Word says and following what God directs us through the Holy Spirit to do uh, in the world. And we want to do that together.